Amen. Thank you, Brother Wayne. Since we did start this new thing with uh, with your kids this morning, kids, if you're if you're listening right now, a big theme today is rest. The concept of rest. So if you're looking for something to color, something to draw, start there. The idea of what rest looks like to you while we work through this passage together. I'm going to work through it line by line here in just a second, but I, I want to start here. As I prepared for chapter four, I started to realize how much these 13 verses are associated with chapter three. This is really one literary unit. And so this is really part two of last week. These two messages, two, two sermons are inextricably linked. The, the argument is built on each other. And so if you weren't here last week, or let's just pretend you don't remember last week, because that can happen, let me catch you back up on what we did last week, because if you don't remember that, a lot of this won't make sense to you. So here's what this writer is doing. He is leaning hard into this analogy about the people who followed Moses. There was that generation of Israel who saw the 10 plagues, went over the Red Sea, they were in the wilderness, they saw a lot of God's care and provision and miracles, but they were unbelieving. In the end, they did not believe in God's promises. They did not receive the, the land that he promised to them, and so they wandered and they died. And then a, a new generation got to go in. He's leaning hard into that analogy for his original readers. So his original readers would have known that story. They were Jewish readers. And in large part, we can lean into that analogy too. That we're not following Moses, we're following Jesus. So we, they were trying to go into a land. We're trying to go into eternal rest that God would give us. So are we going to be like these people or are we going to be a different people? Are we going to be unbelieving and miss out or are we going to be believing? That's your analogy. It's incredible to me how much this writer assumes his readers know the Old Testament. He's going to assume today you know about David. He's going to assume today you know about Joshua. He's going to assume you know a lot. And if you don't know, I'll catch you up as we go. But this is a book written to people who are very familiar with the Old Testament stories. And that's the analogy he gives. So, by way of preview, here's what we're going to see today. There's this rest. That's the... Key word today. There's this rest that God offers. And it is so much better than the land that that generation of Israel that they were trying to get. They were trying to get land. And land is awesome. To have a land where you can be provided for by the ground that you can grow food and handle your livestock, to be protected, have borders, to have an, an identity, to live in one place and say, where we live, we have these customs and these holidays. I mean, land is awesome. But this thing that we are trying to get to, it's even better than having a land. And so while these people missed out on land for being unbelieving, don't miss out on this cosmic, eternal rest God has for you by being unbelieving. And so he has that analogy, and then it's that warning we've, we've seen almost in every chapter. We don't want you to miss out, and you might because there's this enemy of sin, and it it deceives you and it lies to you. And so the, the same imperatives take place. From chapter 1, don't drift. Pay close attention. From last week, take care. Take care to listen. Exhort each other because we don't want anyone to miss out on getting into the eternal rest. So that is your analogy. That's the big theme is rest. Now, verse 1 starts with the word therefore. That tells us we got to remember what was said before. We know that because uh, after church today, if you just walk up to somebody and say, therefore, and start talking, it's going to be very awkward, right? There's a, you got to have the, the previous words. So here's what he just said. He just gave you the analogy of you being the, the people in the wilderness that were unfaithful. He doesn't want you to be that people. He wants you to take care, pay close attention, 
Because sin is deceitful, counsel each other. That's where he started, and then we get to verse 1. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let's pause there briefly. There's a, a dependent clause there in between those commas that can take the sting out of what he's saying. He's, in, in between those commas, it's while the promise of entering his rest still stands. If you take that out, it says, Therefore, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed. And that's a, that's a stark warning. It's one that we should take really seriously. This promise of rest to come still stands, but we need to be careful to grab that promise, to pursue that promise. And that's not a normal thing for me to preach, right? I don't preach fear. But when the text tells me, I better preach it. So therefore, let us fear. What should we fear then? It's clear here that that in our context, it would be something like false conversion. It's being around the people of God, maybe even appearing to be on the path with the people of God, but you are not the people of God. Especially in the South, we've got to be super careful of that. It's very normal that the stories here of the people you work with, people in your family have this story. I went to a Bible camp. I said a prayer. I walked down an aisle. I maybe even got baptized. They might have said the prayer, this prayer they thought had some kind of mystical power, several times. And now they are in your workplaces, they're in your families, they are unbelieving, nothing about their lives is marked by following Jesus, and they are sure, because they're Southern, that they're just in the kingdom of God. Matt Chandler tells the story of a guy that he was pastoring. He took over the church in Dallas, and he said to a guy that was in his church, who was actually kind of leading, he was a, had a leadership position, and said, so uh, tell me, um, so are, oh, he's asked him, are you a Christian? Because he wasn't sure yet uh, what this guy's position was. And he said, yeah, I was born in San Antonio. That was his reason. I'm from Texas, so I guess I'm a Christian. Oh, careful of false conversion. It's not any different in, with Catholicism, especially in the Northeast here. There's a, a baptism. There's twice a year Eucharist, Lord's Supper, and people are convinced, I'm in. But there's no evidence of them actually following after. So we better be careful of false conversion. One preacher gave a great illustration. At least I found it compelling. He said that parents don't tell their kids, fear your bedroom, fear the backyard. They tell you, fear the street. That's the thing that's actually dangerous. And so if this guy's warning us there's something to be careful of, it must be the actual dangerous thing. The dangerous thing is being a false convert, maybe looking like a believer, but not actually being one. We'll explore that more as we go. Verse 2. For good news came to us just as it came to them, that generation in the wilderness. But the message they heard did not benefit them. Why? Well, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So Moses' people, they also got good news. They got the law. They got a way to live. They were made a people. But they also got some good news right around the same time the Ten Commandments came, just six chapters earlier. Listen to this good news that that generation got. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7, we read, The Lord, He's a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's good news, a God like that. 
They got good news. We got good news, but they weren't joined to their good news. Why? He told us here they were unbelieving. They received good news and they did not believe it. Despite all the evidence of God being that good and merciful God who forgives sins and won't judge the guilty, they followed their own way. They chose their own wisdom and they were, by that evidence, they were unbelieving. There was no faith in the good news. Verses 3 through 5. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, we're going back to Psalm 95. He quoted it last week. He's doing it again. And Psalm 95 refers to Numbers 13. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they, that generation, shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished, God's works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, going back to Genesis now, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, Psalm 95, Numbers 13, they shall not enter my rest. We need to pause for a minute. In those verses alone, he said rest four times, and thus far in this passage he's already said that word five times. It's obviously the theme of what he's talking about, rest. And so I want to be careful for us that we don't think about our version of rest when he's talking about something else. When we think about rest, we tend to think the time you're not working is the time that you get to chill and do whatever you want. That's rest in our minds. That is not what the writer is trying to get you to think about. It's not the time that you just get to chill. The reference here actually goes back to Genesis. He activates in your mind the idea of Genesis 1, God speaking everything into existence, and then on the seventh day, resting. A creation rest. That's very different than our rest. When we rest, we're tired. We have, well, we've had fatigue from all the things we did. God did not take the seventh day and rest from speaking galaxies into existence because he was tuckered out. The guy wasn't, the God, excuse me, God was not tired on day seven. He was just enjoying his, his good work. He said it was all good, and he was enjoying the outcome of the work he had completed. It was fulfillment and contentment. That's a very different rest than what we think. Rest is for us is the absence of work. It wasn't just the absence of work. It's the presence of knowing the shalom, the peace that he's created. It's a different level of rest. These verses, admittedly, verses 3, 4, and 5, they are hard to understand if you don't follow his references. He's quoting Psalm 95. He's quoting Genesis 1. And so he's, he's giving you this really clear analogy, even though it, in the language it can be unclear. So Psalm 95, they were going towards a land, and that land was going to give them rest. They were tired. Of course they were. <laughs> they had been wandering around the desert. They had had generations of slavery. They were tired. They wanted a land. That land would have given them some kind of rest. But, I mean, even that rest, it would have been incomplete. There still would have been toil. They're actually found in that generation. It didn't take too long, and that generation fell into what Judges tells us, that they all started doing that which was right in their own eyes. They lost that land. There was toil in that land. So there must be something more. It must be just more than getting a physical land, and it is that Genesis 1 rest that he's activated in your mind. Not just physical land, but something altogether more cosmic. The land was a good promise. But even that would not have been an ultimate rest for them. So he's saying in that Genesis 1 reference, there is something better. There's a better rest than just having land. So then we have to question, well, can I get that? 
Is that rest that's better than land? When they were unfaithful, we, this people, uh, if we're faithful, can we get the thing that's better than land? Well, verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter that rest. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David so long afterward, after that generation, in the words already quoted, Psalm 95, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So we get some good news here that will be reiterated in a moment. It does remain. This good rest that was better than land, it's still available for us. This rest that God offers, it's still available for us. And we and the original readers can make it to that thing that's better than land. Then he starts to develop that thought by some, let's call it some name dropping. He's already started this argument in chapter 3 by talking about Moses, how awesome Moses was, but Jesus is better than Moses. And then he gives some other very important figures. He says, David, writing Psalm 95, thinking about the generation in Numbers 13, that was probably about 300 years later, thinking about them, he writes the psalm to call on his own people, hey, don't harden your hearts. Listen to God. Get, get, get back and do his word. Listen to his law. Hear him. Don't harden your hearts. The, then Joshua, he, he brings up Joshua. Joshua actually, oh, excuse me, let, me, let me say it this way. That's an odd phrasing in verse 8. He says, if Joshua had given them rest. But we know, because we know our Bibles. He was the guy that actually got them in the land. Didn't he get rest? Like, didn't he take them in? He, it was Joshua that got them through the walls of Jericho and Ai and conquered those cities. Didn't Joshua give them rest? But verse 8 says that he didn't. It tells us even more, establishing force even more. Whatever that land was, the land was good promise. It wasn't what we ultimately need. We need something bigger than, better than that land. So I want to pause here for this reason. That I, think, I think that was now the seventh time, excuse me, sixth time that this word rest has been used. He's trying to do a lot to appeal to you to, that you want this rest. And that's worth then asking, well, land that they were looking for, that's very tangible. I know what they were looking for. So this rest that you're trying to appeal to me with, what is it? So let's stop for a second and understand the tool with which he is appealing to us. Let's understand, at least at some level, this idea of Sabbath rest that he brought up there in Genesis. So three quick points. I want to give you just about Sabbath and why we want to enter this kind of rest. Uh, Pastor Doug just preached through this, by the way, in the fourth commandment a couple months ago. I hope you remember some of that. We get the idea of Sabbath originally from Genesis. God does his work of creation for six days, takes a Sabbath rest on that seventh. It's then applied, this concept applied to us in the fourth commandment, given in Exodus 20, given again in Deuteronomy. It's a the word we get associated with it is remember or observe. Remember the Sabbath. Observe this concept of Sabbath. And so it is in that category, remember and observe, I want to give you these three points. What does Sabbath do for us? Why should we pursue it? Why is it a good gift and it's even better than land? Three things. One, Sabbath reminds us that God is the center of everything. When we Sabbath, when we get this rest, we don't get distracted by all these things in the world. Well, sometimes we get distracted by good things, but sometimes we do just get distracted by, where's, where's my career going? What's, what's going on with my kids? That's a good thing to be concerned about. But 
you get distracted, but where, where, where are we going financially? We get maybe distracted by planning for the future, which is good, and we, we kind of forget. But why am I here? What's my point? Sabbath, when we stop and stop thinking and stop planning and stop doing all the things that we do for, for our families and our future, when we stop, we can be reminded, God is the center of everything. I'm made in His image. I can just now stop, focus on Him. Sabbath is a good gift to just stop and know, I'm not the center of the universe. God is. Two, Sabbath reminds us that God is our provider. Certainly, God provides often through natural means. He's giving you some talent, skill, ability, work ethic, and you use that to go provide for you and your family. But Sabbath is a time, too, to stop and thank God. Thank you for that talent and skill and ability and work ethic that if I didn't have it, I wouldn't provide for me. I wouldn't provide for my family. So I can stop and say, thank you. I can be grateful to this God for those good things he gave us. I've said this to you now. It is, you know, it's 10 years. Thank you for celebrating that Friday night. I have been saying this to you for almost 10 years, so I hope it gets in there. Sabbath, this concept of rest, it has been one of the things that has made Christians the most distinct all around the world. The, the normal way of living all around the world is you work every day. We don't get that because of the 40-hour work week, and we think it's super normal to have a weekend. We think it's very normal to have four or five days of work. That's not normal. vast majority of humans for all of time worked from sunup to sundown every day. That was super normal. We're the spoiled weird ones that get to have these things called weekends and limited hours and all that. And so for a world in which everyone was working all the time, because they had to, because life is hard to provide for in those worlds. For there to be a subgroup of people that just takes a day and they don't do anything. Those people were super weird to the, every culture they were in, to the extent that you had to ask, wait, why aren't you guys working? Aren't you afraid of starving and not having what you need? No, the Lord will provide. The Lord provides for us. And he gives us this rest, Amen. this day to be reminded. Man, the Lord is the center of everything, and he provides for me everything I need. Amen. And then three, the Lord, excuse me, Sabbath reminds us of our salvation. One of the things that I have even fallen into in the past is we are working like crazy to earn God's approval. We are just going, 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 doing, 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 because if I, if I can do enough, then I can maybe earn the approval of the Lord. And it's all, it's all really embarrassing how hard we try. It's, not, it, it's nothing. It's all filthy rags compared to what he is. And Sabbath is a time where we can stop and be reminded. The Lord is my salvation. I am not my salvation. So he's the center of everything. He provides everything. He is our salvation. And so then, if we're trying to get to ultimate Sabbath, ultimate rest, then all of those concepts of him being the center of everything, the provider of everything, our security and safety for everything, man, I hope that appeals to you. That's what this writer's trying to appeal to you with, that kind of Sabbath rest, so that when verse 9 hits, it could be a celebration. Verse 9, you get some really, really good news. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. This being in English is a real impediment to getting how powerful it is. Thus far, the word rest has been used six times, and it's this word in Greek. I'm bad at pronouncing these things, but here you go. The word has been kataposis. It just means pause. 
Every time you've read the word rest up until now, it's just that word to pause. Now, he says, there remains a, not a pause, the word is sabbatismos. There doesn't just remain a pause. There, there now remains a Sabbath. Not just pause, but something much bigger than just pausing. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. So he's argued to you to this point. Sabbath rest is available to you. Isn't it incredible? Isn't it great? Don't you want this Sabbath rest even more than this generation wanted land? Don't you want the Sabbath rest for your soul? So then he gives us some instruction. Okay, well, I, yes, yes, you've, you've, you have convinced me. I want that. I don't want to be like this generation that was unbelieving. I don't want to be like them. I want to get to this thing better than the land. Well, what do I do? Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Those two words, we're, we're going to reconcile them, but doesn't it, it should strike us as odd that we strive to rest. Those two things are not, those are antonyms of each other, that you strive to rest. We're going to reconcile those things, but you should feel that tension. On, what do you mean strive to, to rest? Why would we need to strive? Well, I think that answer is peppered throughout these two chapters, three and four, as he does this analogy. But it's peppered throughout this book. Why would we need to strive to get to this rest? Well, because our hearts are just so naturally going to get hard. Our ears are given to not hearing the word. Sin is deceitful and it is lying to us. Our natural inclination is to be like that generation that didn't make it, to fall into disobedience and unbelief. And so when you hear strive, what do I what do you mean I need to strive to rest? Well, just do what the book has already said. Pay close attention to what you've learned. Don't drift, exhort, and counsel each other. Stay with Jesus. Jesus said this something similar. When this guy says, whoever the writer of Hebrews is, strive to enter the rest, he is in some ways echoing Jesus saying, that way, the rest, that way is narrow. It's not broad. You will strive to get there. And listen, I don't want one of you to miss out on getting there. And so we pay close attention and we don't drift and we, we listen to the word of God preached. We exhort each other so we don't have this false convert problem we started with. In strive to enter that rest. Now, this is potentially a big problem for us because we don't want to miss out on this rest. We don't want anyone to miss out. And we've been given some things thus far, the, the commands about not drifting and our uh, taking care. Man, what, what do we have for this? What resource do we have to make sure we strive to enter that rest? That's where verse 12 and 13 come in. A resource you got to have if we're not going to, to fall away. Verse 12, for the Word of God. It's living, active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but are all naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. I want to pause on this for a little while. Let's take um, probably 10 minutes or so and work through this. This is what you're going to need. You don't want to fall away. We don't want our kids to fall away. We don't want to be like this generation that doesn't make it in. We want that rest God offers. What are we going to need? The Word of God. We're going to need that. So let's work through each one. First part, the Word of God. 
The actual literal translation here, the word, would be for the spoken word. But we know from antiquity, just ancient time, that spoken word of God would have been committed to page. It would have been written down. And so the people originally reading this are thinking, or the word of God, okay, that's the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's our prophets. That's the, the word of God. That's their category. But the fact that it's translated spoken word, I think, gives us an opportunity to dwell on something that I think is profound and gives us an opportunity to not take for granted what we have in this book. So a couple points here. The idea of having this, you know that until the printing press, until Gutenberg around 500 years ago came up with that, the vast majority of Christians, they didn't have any Bible written down. Think of what we have on our devices, bounded in very nice, very, very nice leather. It is likely that most of the Christians until the printing press had no concept of just holding all of it together. It's why, in part, the Old Testament is so intent on saying to you and your kids, get them to memorize it. Why? Because you may not actually have a copy. You need to memorize this thing. It's why I think, in part, you have in the Old Testament that the word would be written on your heart that you might not sin against God. Yes, that's about intensity. It's about really having the word ingrained. But it is also kind of practical because paper used to be super expensive and now it's ubiquitous. Having something to write with, that was very rare. We have this when the most Christians and a lot of Jesus followers, Yahweh followers for a long time, they were committing to memory scriptures because they didn't have the advantage we have of getting it written down. So if we have this advantage, I don't want you to take it. I just don't want you to take that for granted. You have something powerful, everything you need for life and godliness. It's living and active. And there would have been generations of Christians before you who would have given anything to have access to this so easily. So I think about our history as, as Christians. In the last dec- excuse me, last century or so, there's been tens of millions of dollars Christians have spent to translate this Bible to other languages. Because the ethic has been, what are, what are these people going to do if they can't read their Bible? we gotta get it. We got to get them the Bible in their language. If they can't read it, what, what are they going to do? It's part of our ethic as Christians. Look up our history. It's one of, the, one of the graces God did through the Christian church was just teaching the people who would otherwise not be taught to read, to read. It was, it was once only the, the priest and the educated and the powerful and the royal, they got to learn that. It was the Christians that came and said, guys, it's probably not great that only the powerful people and only the priests can do that. We should probably all be able to do that. Let's educate that. It was actually first the Christians that said, why are we only teaching the boys to read? Why don't we teach the girls too? And only for this. It wasn't so they could read Shakespeare, although Shakespeare's awesome. They wanted them to be able to read this. We have been, tra- we have been trying for centuries to get everyone to be able to read their Bibles. I love that story of where I work up at North Greenville. If you don't know our history, it's, actually, it's, it's, it's at least interesting, if not a little heartwarming. There were some Baptists in 1890 in Augusta, Georgia, who heard about this part of South Carolina called the Dark Corner. If you don't know that part of South Carolina, it was called the Dark Corner. Because that group up there, which is now north of Traveler's Rest, Blue Ridge, they were living pioneer lives. They were not integrating into Greenville. They weren't integrating into Asheville. They were doing their own thing out in the pioneers, like in pioneer pipe land. And so this, these Baptists down in Augusta, Georgia went, hold on. Are you telling me there are people in America that are growing up that can't read their Bibles? 
we got to get up there. We got to send a school up there. And what North Greenville University is now started as a middle school and high school just to teach people how to read their Bibles. That's all it was. And now it's, you know, it's where, where I work. It's this awesome place. That, we, we've had that ethic for so long. And it's been such a fight that we just take it for granted. Take it for granted you got in your pocket. I'm trying to get you today to, to recognize that. And don't take it for granted. Amen. This is a triumph that we have this thing. Let's not take it for granted. Get in there. It's the Word of God. Well, what else do we know about the Word of God? Well, it's living. And you might say, Corey, I just saw you pick that up. It's not living. That's inert matter. That's leather. That's paper. That's not, that's not alive. No, it's, it's alive. It's alive because he who inspired it is alive. The spirit that inspired it to originally be written, he is alive when you read it. We know it's alive because that Bible right there is turned to Isaiah where it says, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. When you read this, the living God who inspired it is alive to inform you of what you're reading. But it's not just living, it's active. You can say that for some large amount of people. There are a lot of people living, but they are not active. But that's not what this word is. It's living and active, and it's doing things. If you will get in it, it will do something to you. It will change your attitude. It will change your worldview. It will change your outlook because it's powerful and living and active. Then it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing. You know, when I was growing up, we did these things called sword drills. I think... I think that practice came from this passage. In sword drills, where we would take our Bibles. I remember, I won, by the way, at Hampton Park in second grade. Um, you take your Bibles, and the, the teacher would call out some obscure reference in the Bible, and the first one to get there, put their finger on it, be able to read it, they were the winner of the sword drill. I actually thought as a kid, why are, why are we calling it a sword? What is the, what's the deal with this? And here's in part why. Because this is sharper than any two-edged sword. The original reader would have had a really vivid picture. The Romans were the first ones, at least we think, in history, that didn't just put the blade on one side so that this side was safe. They put the blade on both sides, and they carried these things around. The original reader knows that's a dangerous weapon. Well, this word of God, it's a two-edged sword. That's why I want to critique a phrase we use, especially in the, in the South. If you use this phrase, I'm not criticizing you. If you want to keep using it, keep on using it. I don't want to criticize at all. I just want to make a critique of a phrase we use. Sometimes we will say in a particular sermon that goes over some particular sins, we will say, that really stepped on my toes. Not according to this. It's not, the word of God's not clumsy and, and made you stub your toe. It cut you. It pierced you. It didn't just make you uncomfortable. And when you get in here, it will pierce you. It will pierce how you think about sexual ethics. It will think about how you think and live and talk and spend, how you work, who you talk about and what you say. It will pierce you. It will cut you. And sometimes you need to be cut. Sometimes to get the right healing, cutting has to happen. I can't ever watch it, but you know, you'll, you'll see these shows that show you medical procedures. Like what we do to bodies to heal them is your special people who can be a part of it. But we, we cut open humans and we use blades, now often lasers, to like do stuff inside of them and then sew them up. But man, if you don't do that, a lot of people in this room, some people in this room would not have made it if not for those types of surgeries being cut. I thought about uh, an example for me on this one. Let's, let's see how, how far this example can go. 
Last summer, it's actually around this time, I got LASIK surgery. For most of my adult life, I could not see, like badly, as in I could pull up to a red light and there would be a car in front of me. I could not read the license plate on that car. It was just blurred colors. I went and had this LASIK surgery. They, they literally took lasers and cut off part of my eyeballs. And now I can see perfectly. I couldn't, see if this, uh, this, uh, if this works for you, if this analogy works, I wasn't seeing the world clearly. I had some things wrong. My vision of the world was wrong. And I needed to be cut to see it rightly. The vision of this world that we have is often worldly. Yeah. It's often infected by the literature you read, the movies you watched, how you grew up. You're not seeing the world right. Well, what will cut you properly so you can see it rightly? The Word of God will do that. Man, I, I, two more points on this. That's also a word of caution for us. The word is powerful. So those of us who are using it and speaking it to each other, we need to be very, very careful how we use it. This is very powerful. Yeah. It's a very powerful word. We need to use it carefully. I, I, uh, actually, it occurred to me on my, my LASIK, uh, whatever, the cons consultation. For the first time in my life, I, I realized my trust in institutions is probably too high because I just assume everyone knows exactly what they're doing and everyone is super well-intended. It occurred to me, I'm actually picking somebody to shoot lasers in my eyeballs. I should be very careful about who these people are. And so I was trying to be very discerning about who this person was, and he had a British accent, so I assumed he was very smart. And he ended up doing, he did a great job, and now I can see. But like, that's something we should also be careful of. Who do we let cut us with the word? That We need to take it seriously that we're the ones cutting each other as we use the word, but let's be very discerning about who we listen to because they're using a powerful, a very powerful blade. But then you can also just count on this. Ultimately, if you're getting in the word, the great physician is cutting on you. The Holy Spirit activated believer in the word looking to have what needs to be cut out of you, cut out of you. Jesus is the right doctor with the right tools. He's the great physician. This word is sharper than any two-edged sword. It will pierce you, not just step on your toes. And that's something that we often need. A couple more parts of this. Discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Next part is discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Here's something I notice about modern Western life. We seem to think we are super good at discerning everyone else's thoughts and intentions. It's one of my big pet peeves. I don't like being having assigned to me why I did what I did. But this thing, this word, it is saying back to me, oh, I'll tell you why you did what you did. I'll tell you what idol caused that decision. I will tell you what attitude caused you to speak that word unfitly spoken. I will read your thoughts. I will read the intentions of your heart. Something that some of us need to get better at, reading our own intentions, reading our own, thought, our own thoughts and why we do what we do. Well, how can I do that? Apparently, this is a good tool. It's a good tool to discern your thoughts and intentions. The word discernment there, I want you to make sure you hear it rightly. It does not mean it condemns your thoughts and conditions your, and, and intentions of your heart. It discerns them. It discerns some things are believing in nature. That's, that's the big analogy here, right, of Psalm 95. Some of them were unbelieving and you want to be believing. It will discern in you that thought, that intention you had. Is that believing the promises of God? Or are you believing in sin instead because it's deceiving you? It will discern your thoughts and intentions if you'll get in here. And then final part there, it says, no creature is hidden. We are telling us we're all exposed. At various degrees of skill in this room, we are good at hiding. 
We are good at projecting an image to the world that we want them to see. For all of us, though, at various levels, we need to be exposed. And the Word will do that. If you get in it, you hear it preached, you stay in the Word, it will expose even what you're hiding. It will tell you what you need to change. It will tell you where your worldview is off. You're not, it, it won't let you hide. It will come for every part of you. And that's good news. The Word of God, it's living, it's active, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. It discerns your thoughts and intentions, and you can't hide from it. That's verses 1 through 13. That's the text for today. And I only have two points for you, two points of application. This first one's very short. So point one is strive to enter that rest. Number one, strive to enter that rest. I like to, when I can, take the application points directly from the text. So he wrote those words, strive, strive to enter that rest. So how do we do that? I think it's already been peppered in throughout the book thus far. It's what we've already preached. Don't drift. Keep your hand on the wheel. Pay close attention to what you've learned. Take care to listen when the, when the Bible is preached. Exhort each other. Counsel each other. Encourage each other. Don't get distracted by the deceitfulness of sin. Reject the lies that sin tells you. Lies that we've been over. The lies that it'll tell you that getting this person's attention or compromising this this purity, adopting the world's values on, on laziness or divorce or revenge, anger, whatever the lie is that tells you, that we talked about last week, tells you if you do these things, you'll, you'll be happy, you'll get what you want. We reject those. How do you strive to enter the rest? We'll talk about it more in this series, but we've already talked about it a lot. That's how. Counsel each other. Pay attention. Don't drift. Don't believe sin. Don't let it lie to you. Don't let it deceive you. Don't lose this faith when it gets hard to believe. We can start that right now. That's all I, all I really want to say about it. Strive to enter, and we know how. We counsel each other. We stay in the Word. We fight against sin in our lives. We don't listen to sin when it lies to us. We strive to enter. Then, number two, we'll take a little more time on this. Number two is rest in Christ, the better Sabbath. Number two, rest in Christ, the better Sabbath. I thought about the original generation a good bit the, gen, the original generation that followed Moses I've thought about them a good bit in this analogy because they were going towards land were going towards something else but they were going towards land what were they looking for what would land give for them I thought about these three they were going to get security provision and identity if they got into the land they would be secure their border they would have borders they would know where they're supposed to be they would get provision. The, the ground could provide for them and their families. It could provide for their, their livestock. They would have what they need. And they would get identity, that they would be a people. They would have customs and holidays, just the same way that we as, a, we as a country, we have an identity because of where we live. They were going for a land because they needed and wanted security, provision, and identity. We all need those things deeply right now. Some of our most fundamental needs, we need security, we need provision, and we need identity. They were going to a land for it, but we're going towards Christ for it. He's a better security, a better provision, and a better identity. And I want to go through all three of those briefly. Number one, rest in Christ, the better Sabbath for security. And for a, in a spiritual state, there's scriptures that tell us that what the Lord started, He's going to finish in you. We've already learned in this book, you are God's house. We can listen to Jesus and the gospel say, 
the, the ones that the Father gave to me, I'm not going to lose one of those. And if you are in my hand, no one's plucking you out. You are spiritually secure, not because of anything you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. If he has started a good work in you, he will finish. I haven't heard that here, but I've worked with folks at, uh, at North Greenville and worked with people in the past that really struggle with believing they're in the faith. They struggle with the security that they that are a real convert. Listen, if that's you, I, I want you to wrestle through that with us. Let's, let's talk about it. But if you are following Christ today, I also want to say to you, you can rest. He won. He beat, he beat sin. It wasn't even close. He beat sin. He beat death. He has made you spiritually secure. We live in a very high anxiety time, though, a very insecure era where people worry like crazy. And so you might say, yeah, uh, sure, I believe that. Jesus has my soul secure, but what about my physical safety? What about my physical health? Yeah, I can't can't lie to you. We're not a health and wealth place. Uh, this life is affected by sin. It's hard. In this room, there's going to be sicknesses. There already has been. There's going to be accidents. There already have been. There will be hard things. And what we know from another, it's Romans, another epistle. And all things work together for good. For those who love him and are called according to his purpose. I can't promise you and never would promise you ease of life. Jesus didn't do that. But I can promise you a good God who is working even your hard things to make you more in his image. You can be secure spiritually. He's going to hold on to you. And you can be secure physically. It might be harder than you wanted to, but you will be cared for by this Christ the better Sabbath, so you can rest in the security that he provides. Number two, you can rest in Christ the better Sabbath for provision. You know, there's a, so a hymn we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, that the third verse I love, but grammatically, I think it's hard for the people singing it to recognize they're singing a list until it's too late. Because that last verse goes, uh, pardon for sin, a peace that endures. Just starting there, pardon for sin. I need that. Uh, peace that endures. I need that too. Your own presence. I need the presence of God to cheer and to guide. Strength for today. I need that. Hope for tomorrow. I need that. And then the verse ends, they're all mine. All these are blessings that are mine and 10,000 beside. This is spiritual provision for all the things you need. Pardon for sin. Peace that endures. Presence. Strength. Hope for tomorrow. You are provided for and everything you need spiritually. But again, you might wonder, okay, I get that. Spiritually, I'll have what I need, but what about physically? Will I have what I need? Well, I, that same hymn actually has in the chorus, All I have needed, thy hand has provided. His mercies are made new every morning. Now, your definition of needed might need, all I have needed, might need, uh, might need some editing. If your all I have needed includes two vacations a year, certain kind of cars, a certain standard of living, if that's what you think you need, you're just a wealthy American and you need to edit what you think you need. But this God is saying, what you need, I'll take care of you. Jesus even said to us, yeah, some of your stuff, rust, moth, rust, rust moths, thieves, they'll affect what you have. But I mean, Paul said that too in Philippians. In plenty and in one. I know what it's like to have a lot. I know what it's like to have a little. But I can endure all those things. And the next phrase is because 
I have Christ who strengthens me. I can do all these things. I can be in plenty. I can be in want. I can be in poverty because Christ strengthens me. If I got Christ, I got what I need. That, again, might take in you some chiseling out of the standard of living you've been taught we all are supposed to have. But you will be provided for. You can rest. You can rest even in the physical things because what you need, He will provide. That's that's a fear I I don't want any of you living in. Rest in Christ, the better Sabbath for security. Rest in Christ, the better Sabbath for provision. And then finally, rest in Christ, the better Sabbath for identity. We live in a time obsessed with identity. That is a a, a major topic in crisis, a crisis of identity. We don't know what it means to be a father, a mother, a man, a woman, to be a member of our community, to even now be a member of whatever state or country you're in. We have, we have disconnected the idea of our identities being the the roles we play for others. We don't know who we are anymore. We're in an identity crisis as a people in the Western world. That's what these these unbelieving generation trying to go into the wilderness, they wanted an identity. They wanted someone to tell them who they are. We have that in Christ. We have what we're going to need as an identity. We, We try to identify ourselves with other lesser things when all we really need to know is I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. I'm in the family of God. That's who I am. Not first a a hard worker or a a southerner or an American or this particular ideology. The first thing I am, the thing I need to know about me, I'm in the family of God. And if I know who I am, then I'll know what to do. I'll know how to operate in the world because I, I can think to myself, this thought I'm having, these words I'm saying, this behavior I'm taking part in, is that what someone of the, the people of God does? Someone in the family of God, do they think that, do that, behave this way, treat these people this way? Do they, do they do those things? No? Well, then let's align yourself with the identity you actually have. You're in the people of God, and therefore you have an identity from which to, to operate in the world. Just a couple final thoughts here. Here's some things I have seen. Spiritually, you have your identity. In Christ. But again, some of you ask, well, what, what am I in this world? What am I, trying to, what am I trying to accomplish? Well, I came, thought of a few. For some of you, this is mostly men I've noticed. We tend to think our identity is what we produce or how hard we work. I thought about that for this generation wandering in the wilderness. They had been centuries. They were slaves. They were defined by what they do. Their work defined them. And listen, I've been there. I've been there when I look back on a week, I look back on a day, and I see everything I did, and it feels like I justified my existence today. If I wouldn't have done those things, then who am I if I don't do those things? Some of you have that. If you don't produce, if you don't have a particular work ethic, then you don't know what you are. trying to say to you, you're not your work ethic. You're not what you produce. One day as you stop being able to produce that much, when you can't work that hard, you'll still be a child of God. That, that identity you had, it will fail you because one day you won't be able to produce and work hard. This, is, this one goes, I think, the other direction. If that's what men often suffer with, I've, I see it even, uh, no, no examples. I'll just say I see it in media. Ladies will struggle with identifying with how they look. And time changes, and that's okay. But if you think, I am how I look, 
And then that starts to fade from you. You won't know what to do. You'll be in a panic for an identity. And if you're in the family of God, this, I'm not what I look like. I'm a child of God. For some of you, listen, you are who you think loves you. You think if I don't have their affection, if I don't have their approval, if they don't love me, who am I? What will I be if I don't have them? That will fail you. You're a child of God. You're not someone else's attention and affection and approval. Some of you struggle with that because of bad parental situations. You never had that affection and approval and attention. And so you feel like there's something lacking in you. You are in Christ complete. Not in you and what you've done. You are in Christ complete. You don't, their, their love doesn't define you. I'll give you one final one that I just think is, just, well, maybe a funny story for me. Like, I, for, for me, I don't define myself at all by whatever talents I have. I realized this about myself back in, probably it was 2010. If you all remember, I was in a band. And I was a front man in that band. And we were, we were starting to get invited to Nashville to play maybe twice a month. And like we were starting to hit a little bit. And I thought, because we played in Greenville a lot, played in Asheville a lot, we played down in Charleston. I thought, we're pretty good. I think we're pretty good. The first time we played in Nashville... I've realized, oh, we're not good at all. Now that I've seen what good is, because I thought we were good, and then I saw that band play so tightly together. I thought I was a pretty good front man, pretty good singer, and I saw someone else who was just way better. And in one, in one way, it was just good to, good to see a, a proper measure, measurement. But I also realized while we were there, I apparently don't define myself by my singing. I don't define myself by being the front man of this band. Because I actually saw them, and there was no jealousy. I was like, you guys are awesome. I was just able to celebrate someone else being great. But for some of you, your talents, it kills you when someone's better at you, than, better, than, better than you at a given thing. You're not your talents. You're not how well you sing or manage money or how, you, how well a preacher you are. You're not those things. And listen, we got to do away with that because we can't. jealousy will kill the next generation. Listen, I want every one of you boys... To, to be better at all the things that I'm good at, I want you to be better than me at those things. We're going to need you to be better at me than those things. So I want you to, those are called to preach, preach better than we ever could. Those of you that are called to sing and lead worship, do better. I'll make some space for you. There's, we are not our talents. I'm not my ability to sing. And if someone else is better than me, great. That's awesome. Let's use that. Rest in Christ. The better Sabbath for your security, for your provision, and for your identity. You're not what you produce or how you look or who loves you or your talents. So summing up, don't miss out. Don't miss out on this thing that's better than land, the rest God gives. How do you not do that? Strive to enter that rest. Strive by all the things we've talked about. Don't drift. Hold on to the wheel. Pay close attention to the word. Exhort each other. Do those things. And in that way, get this great gift that you can start living into right now. The rest, the security, the provision, the identity. God grants. Let me pray for us as the band comes.